Lecture 3 The Early Anglo-Saxon Kingdoms Welcome back. Last time we looked at Roman Britain and we saw how the Roman province fell to invaders or settlers from the northwest of Europe and we talked about the resistance to settlement that may or may not have been centered around a figure named Arthur who becomes the colonel of the King Arthur legend. Today we're going to shift our focus from the British, the people who resist the settlers, to the settlers themselves because ultimately King Arthur lost and the settlers won. So in this lecture we're going to meet the people who settled Britain and transformed it slowly but surely into England. So we're going to look at the societies these people came from, what they may have brought with them to Britain, and then we'll look at how these settlers created a patchwork of kingdoms that covered all of southern and eastern Britain. So let's start by going back to the homelands of these settlers to see what sort of people they were. First of all, let me say a few words about where they came from. It's important to know that they came from lots of different places. They were all, broadly speaking, from what we would call Germanic areas, that is, places where the language spoken was some form of German. But this included some pretty far-flung areas. Some of the settlers came from what is now the Netherlands, especially Friesland. Some came from northern Germany, especially the North German Plain, the area now known as Saxony. And quite a few seem to have come from Scandinavia, from Denmark and southern Sweden. Most of these areas, of course, are close to the sea. So the people who came to Britain were probably pretty familiar with sea travel. So these groups aren't all from exactly the same place, but their cultures did share some broad similarities. For one thing, they were quite decentralized. If you like, they were stateless societies. They don't have powerful kings that are making policy. There's not a single order Okay, everybody, let's get up and invade Britain and settle there. These are small groups acting on their own initiative when it seems in their best interests to do so. And a lot of things about these societies follow on from this basic fact. There isn't a strong central leader. A very important and very distinctive aspect of these societies is their legal system. And the legal system very much reflects this idea that there isn't a strong central authority. It's quite different from, say, the Roman legal system. In Rome, you have laws decreed by the state, and there's a whole infrastructure of courts and advocates. Really, it's the state that is in charge of everything. In these Germanic societies, the law is really more of a self-help process. The system is set up so that everyone can basically enforce the law themselves. It's about regulating relationships between individuals, or really, between families. There isn't any state to get in between. The way it works is that everyone in society has assigned to them a monetary value called a guild. The term guild literally means man money. The where in guild means man. Think of the word werewolf. A werewolf is a wolfman, a man-wolf. So where is man and guild is money. So this guild is based on various attributes that determine how valuable you are to society. What are you worth? 
and this can include your gender, whether you're a man or a woman, how old you are, how rich you are. So you might have a very high-status man who has a wear guild or a price that is six times that of a low-status man. And you find these legal systems in all of the Germanic tribes in Europe. In some of these Germanic legal systems, women have a higher value when they reach childbearing age because it was believed that that made them more valuable to society. So if you look at these wear guilds, they can tell us a lot about the values of these societies. You can see that childbearing is clearly valued. You can actually put a price on it. Now, this price was used to determine how much someone would have to pay if they injured or killed you. You'd have to pay a proportion of the wear guild for a minor injury, then a little bit more for a serious one. And you would have to pay the full amount of the wear guild if you killed someone. And the laws could make some rather sophisticated distinctions. For example, they could take account of how serious a specific injury was likely to be, what kind of impact it would have on the victim. For example, the Frankish laws imposed different fines for cutting off different fingers, depending on how important the finger was. You have to pay twice as much for cutting off someone's bow finger, that's the, the finger they would use to draw back the bowstring, as you would for cutting off any of the others. Because clearly, if you can't uh, draw back the bowstring, uh, you're going to have a, a serious problem. Uh, so you have to pay twice as much for that. You have to pay most of all if you cut off the thumb, because of course the thumb is your most valuable finger. So that's a way of putting a fair price on the injury, taking the consequences of the injury into account. Now, what if somebody did worse than cut off your finger? What if you're not around anymore? What good does the wear guild system do to you? Well, it might not help you very much, but it's going to help your family because your family gets the payment. And the reason that your family gets the wear guild payment is so that they don't go take revenge on the family of the person who killed you. Essentially, the wear guild system is a way of trying to stop people from getting into tit-for-tat feuds. Whenever there's some episode of violence, you might have a feud breakout, and this system is to try to stop that. And we can guess, certainly, that violence is not exactly rare in these societies. But the key thing to note here is that the system is all about self-regulation. There isn't a state to enforce it. It all has to be worked out between the parties. But the lack of a state doesn't mean that these societies aren't very complicated. They're quite sophisticated social organisms. There's a lot of subtlety in their values. And if you look at some of these barbarian laws, you can see that they seem to understand a lot about human nature. For one thing, they can differentiate between crimes of opportunity and crimes of forethought. Obviously, we do this in the distinction with regard to murder and manslaughter. If you plan it in advance, it's murder. If it just sort of happens in the middle of a fight, it's, it's sort of in hot blood, then that's manslaughter. And we punish murder more strictly than we do a manslaughter, for example. But the Germanic law takes this a step farther. It can distinguish between planning and spontaneous action with regard to theft. 
According to these laws, it's worse if you plan to steal something than if you just take advantage of something that drops in your lap. And one of the best examples of this, it comes again from the Frankish Law Code. And I'll warn you, it's a little bit gruesome, but it does give you a sense of what sorts of things go on in this period. And this is the penalty for robbing a dead body. And the fine varies depending on whether you plan to do this in advance. The fine is 100 solidi, that's a, a Roman money unit. It's 100 solidi if you steal from the body before it's put in the ground, but it's double that. It's 200 solidi if you dig the body up to steal from it. Now, why would you steal from a body? Of course, that's because in this period, a lot of times people are being buried with very rich grave goods, with jewelry, valuable weapons, that sort of thing. So it was a contingency that you had to plan for. But I think that's a pretty sophisticated distinction to draw. You're going to punish uh, the habitual criminal more harshly than the guy who just stumbles across a, a dead body and, oh, why don't I just take advantage of this opportunity? And he succumbs to temptation. So this is a complicated society. It doesn't have an elaborate government like the Roman Empire. It's not uh, you know, a very elaborate state, but still it makes these fine distinctions. And it's not a society of equals either. There is hierarchy in this, in this society. There are people of high status and people of low status. Some people have more resources than others. They might have more land, they might have more treasure, they might be able to command the loyalty of more people. And those are the people who get the higher wear guild. So society is organized vertically into high status and low status people. But as we've already seen, it's organized horizontally as well because it's organized by kin membership. Belonging to a family is all important. These are the people who are going to stick up for you. Now, this system certainly doesn't work perfectly. There are members of kin groups who don't do what they're supposed to do. Essentially, they were the black sheep uh, of the early Germanic families. And we know this because some of the Germanic laws actually spell out ways, essentially, that you can kick somebody out of your family. Suppose you have a cousin, and your cousin is always getting into trouble. Uh, you don't want to keep paying guilds for the people that he kills and injures. That gets expensive. Uh, so there's a way that you can declare this worthless cousin an outlaw. And that means that he is a member of no kin group. That means, officially speaking, he has nobody to stick up for him. And this would be a very scary proposition in this society. So it does work somewhat as a check on people's behavior. Interestingly, there's also a, uh, an opposite procedure. There's a way for somebody to renounce their kin. So I guess families had their problems then as they do now. But the bottom line is that people's experience is pretty largely determined by their social status and by their kin group. These two factors are going to determine a lot about the options that they had open to them in life. So what kinds of things would people want to do? What are the values of these Germanic societies? One thing we need to make clear is we don't know a lot about what people below the level of the elite valued, because mostly what we have is poetry, and poetry is pretty much exclusively about the top level of society. The people at the top are the ones who paid the poets. 
But since the elite members of society do drive a lot of very important aspects of life, I think it's all right to give their values some attention. And the most obvious fact about them is that these people valued warfare. War is definitely the most prestigious activity you can engage in. Uh, it's the most lucrative. You amass treasure that way. You give treasure out to followers. You amass uh, followers. Uh, you become a leader. And leaders who are successful in battle, they get poems written about them. Their names are remembered. Everything good happens to them. And this society very much seems to have valued reputation and people remembering them. Now, the ironic thing about this warrior ethos, that's what people call it, the ironic thing about the warrior ethos is that the vast majority of people in these societies really have nothing to do with it. Most of these Germanic people, the ones who come and settle in Britain, are essentially peaceful farmers. And in fact, they are pretty successful farmers. When these groups of settlers arrive in Britain, they sit right down and start farming. They bring some of their own crops and livestock with them. They seem to have been more focused for some reason on raising pigs than the British were. They like pigs more than the British. But they're also very ready to adopt some of the local practices that work well in Britain. They start farming, uh, they start raising some of the crops that are grown in Britain. They start uh, uh, raising some of the livestock uh, that are raised in Britain. And slowly but surely, they create uh, a new landscape that is a, an amalgam of the farming methods of the British and the German settlers. Well, if a few of them are fighting, most of them are farming, there's one thing none of them are doing, and that is reading. These groups that settle in Britain are illiterate and they are pagans. And that's actually quite important because it probably determines a lot about how the transition from Roman rule unfolds. The new settlers simply have no stake in preserving very much of the Romanized culture that they find in Britain. They don't get it. It's not important to them. And this is quite different from what happens on the continent. Most of the rest of the Roman Empire is conquered by barbarians who are, in fact, literate Christians. Lots of people don't realize that. You know, they, they imagine barbarian hordes uh, rampaging everywhere. The barbarian hordes on the continent are Christians. Now, they're a special kind of Christians. They're a heretical sort of Christian called Arians, and that causes its own religious tensions. But still, they're not pagans, and they do place a value on Roman civilization, and they mostly try to preserve it. The settlers in Britain, on the other hand, really don't. And that's why Christianity in Britain is almost totally wiped out in the areas that the newcomers settle. Christianity survives mostly only in the fringe areas where the British concentrated, the places where they took refuge in the West. There you do have people who are highly educated, people like Gildas, whom we met in the last lecture. These are people who certainly speak British, but they also can write very complicated Latin. Gildas's Latin is quite complicated. We're going to talk a lot more about the religious situation in Britain in our next lecture, but for right now, it's just important to remember the new settlers are pagans, and they don't have any interest, at least for now, in adopting the religion of the British elite, which is Christianity. But, as I said last time, the rural people in Britain had probably always been pagans, so the assimilation between the two groups that I talked about last time probably doesn't involve very much of a clash over religion. It's two pagan groups intermingling with each other. So now we've met the Germanic settlers. 
We've seen they're very decentralized. They have their own laws that are designed to minimize conflict between kin groups. We've seen they're pagan and illiterate. What happens when they arrive in Britain? How does the process actually unfold? Here, we have an interesting clash between our written sources and our archaeological evidence, and it makes for a complicated picture. In fact, I've already given you the picture that most scholars find persuasive nowadays, and this is the one in which you have lots of little bands of settlers. They come to Britain basically on their own initiative, probably because they've heard that conditions there are favorable. But that's not at all the picture that we get from the best writ source that we have about this period. And this is the Ecclesiastical History of the English People by our old friend Bede. It was Bede's description of the island of Britain that I used to start off the course in our first lecture. Bede gives us a very different story. He tells us that the new newcomers came from the most formidable races of the Germans. That's what he calls them, Germans. And these three races were, according to Bede, the Saxons from northern Germany, the Jutes, maybe from Jutland and Denmark, and the Angles. And the Angles, Bede says, are from the territory in between the Saxons and the Jutes. Here are the Angles in the middle. Each of these three races, according to Bede, settles down in a different part of Britain and becomes the ancestors of the peoples of Bede's own day. Now remember, Bede is writing in the early 8th century about things that happened in the mid-5th century. So he is more remote in time from the events that he is talking about than we are from the American Revolution. By the 8th century, the newcomers have coalesced into various larger groupings or kingdoms, and we'll talk about that process in a moment. But what Bede seems to want to do here is to backdate that development, to project it back into the 5th century. He wants to see these large groupings that he's familiar with in his own time, he wants to see them present right at the start. He wants to make the period of migration and settlement a whole lot neater than it actually was. Lots of small autonomous groups coming to Britain on their own in dribs and drabs. That's not nearly as impressive as three big peoples all coming in one big wave of migration and setting up kingdoms right away. Okay. But Bede's story of how it all happened has been immensely influential, so I'm just going to lay it out briefly because it's what the English believed about themselves until really quite recently. This was the view that almost everybody accepted of how England was peopled. So, according to Bede, we have these three peoples. Where do they supposedly settle? The Saxons supposedly settle in southern England. They give rise to the kingdoms that we find in place later across southern England, the kingdoms of the West Saxons in Wessex, the South Saxons in Sussex, and the East Saxons in Essex. The Angles settle to the north of them. The kingdoms they give rise to are East Anglia, the kingdom of the East Angles, in what is now Norfolk and Suffolk, and Mercia, the kingdom of the Middle Angles, and Northumbria. Northumbria was the kingdom of the North Angles, and Northumbria got its name because it was north of the Humber River, hence Northumbria. So now we've got the Angles and the Saxons accounted for, and you can see they're settling in the area that becomes England, not in Wales and not even, at this point, in the southwest, in Cornwall. Those areas are still held by the British. But I've left out the Jutes. The Jutes supposedly have to content themselves with the Isle of Wight 
and with the relatively small kingdom of Kent in the extreme southeast of Britain. But Kent is a very economically powerful kingdom. It's very close to the continent. The trading possibilities are extensive. So for the Jutes, that's got to be some consolation. This picture Bede paints. It's very attractive. It explains very well what the map looks like by maybe 600. Explains it very well. At least those are the most important kingdoms. But the kingdoms probably don't arise. Directly out of the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes. That's just a very convenient way of tidying up a very messy history. For one thing, East Anglia doesn't seem to have been the kingdom of the East Angles in the sixth century. It was probably ruled by a Scandinavian dynasty, not a German one. There's lots of diversity among the artifacts from this period, and that probably means that in East Anglia you've got a mixing of a lot of different peoples. So East Anglia is a composite kingdom. It's not a thoroughly Anglian one at all. We have an even bigger problem with the Jutes. The Jutes are always a problem. A lot of scholars don't believe in the Jutes. Bede says the Jutes come from the continent, but there just isn't very much evidence—archaeological evidence or any other kind—that there were any Jutes before they arrived in Britain. Nowadays, scholars think that the people who become known as the Jutes, the people who end up ruling Kent, really they only coalesce as a grouping, a social and political grouping, once they all find themselves together in close proximity in Kent under the influence of the Franks across the water in France. There's no way that there was a big group of Jutes that got on boats together and came over to Britain. They only became Jutes once they got there. Now, fortunately, there doesn't seem to be a huge problem with the Saxons. At least the Saxons are a little bit more straightforward. But it's clear that they only acquired a sense that they were Saxons in the course of the sixth century. This idea of identity is only gradually forming. So, the picture of how the settlers get themselves organized into kingdoms—it doesn't match Bede exactly. The archaeologists are probably right. And Bede is probably wrong. It was small bands of settlers who came over in small groups, followed perhaps by their wives and children. They settled here, and the kingdoms arose later. The archaeology is very intriguing on this point. What you see in the cemeteries that have been excavated is, in the early period, quite a lot of diversity of artifacts. People are picking things from here and there. They have brooches of all different kinds. But over the course of the sixth century, you get much more regional uniformity. It looks as if people are starting to identify with certain cultural patterns on a regional basis, maybe an ethnic basis. Identities are forming. They don't exist fully formed when the settlers arrive in Britain. Now, maybe Bede gets this wrong simply because he doesn't know how it happened. That's very likely. But I also think that Bede has an agenda. He wants to make these kingdoms look a lot more well-established than they actually were. These are very traditional societies. The older something is, the farther back you can trace it, the more impressive it seems. So, if you can make these kingdoms date back to the fifth century, if in effect you can just transfer them wholesale from the continent and plop them down in Britain, then they're going to look more ancient. And more formidable, so I think there's a little bit of that going on with Bede.
But one big reason Bede's picture of how settlement worked has been so popular is that it's at least easy to understand. Now I've explained why there are a few problems with it, why there are some nuances that we should be keeping in mind, I'm going to go ahead and follow Bede, because once we get to about the year 600, he pretty much does have it right. We do have a pretty clear picture of what the political geography of England is from this point on, and I'm going to start calling it England now. I'm going to be also referring to the people who live in England as the Anglo-Saxons. They wouldn't have called themselves that, of course. That's really a modern term that scholars have invented to talk about the people who are supposedly descended from the Angles and the Saxons. Um, thank goodness they didn't try to add the jutes onto the name. That would have gotten really cumbersome. So what do things look like about 600? What seems to have happened by this point is that kingdoms arose out of this initial mass of small settler groups. And it was probably, as you would expect, a rather messy process. Society slowly becomes more stratified. Some leaders are more successful than others. They're able to attract more followers. They're able to impose their will on more people. So, by 600, you have a group of kingdoms that spreads across what is now England. And the dynasties that rule these kingdoms may have different origins, in some cases, from the people that they ruled. We're not talking about uh, ethnic cohesion. This is all really sort of invented along the way. Okay? But you get a lot of dynastic genealogy and ideology forming in this period. All of these Germanic kings begin to claim descent from the pagan god Woden. And we have texts of these royal genealogies that claim this. They go back many generations until you get back to Woden. And basically, this is the pagan equivalent of tracing your descent back to Adam, like the series of begats in the Bible. It's something that kings did to give themselves legitimacy, because it looked impressive to be descended from the king of the gods. Really, these are probably mostly Johnny-come-latelys, people who have only been powerful for a very short time, and they're trying to give themselves this extra cloak of legitimacy. So, they're all related to Woden, these kings. Who are they? I'm going to simplify here. The traditional way to classify the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms is to group them in what historians call the heptarchy, the rule of seven. Again, nobody calls them this at the time. This is a modern term, but it's a pretty useful one. I think we'll keep it. These are the seven largest, most powerful kingdoms, the ones you really need to know about. There are a few other smaller kingdoms, but they're less important, and we will not worry about them. These seven kingdoms do align pretty well with the classification given by Bede. So he's not wrong about 600 AD. He's just wrong about how we got there. So here are the kingdoms of the Heptarchy, and we've already met them. Northumbria in the north, Mercia in the west midlands, East Anglia in the east midlands. Those are the supposedly Angle kingdoms. Then there are the three Saxon kingdoms, Wessex in the southwest, Sussex on the south coast, Essex in the area to the east of London. And finally, there's Kent in the southeast, just across the English Channel from France. As I said, there are smaller kingdoms that came and went, some of them got absorbed into larger ones. And in fact, Northumbria was a composite kingdom. It was made up of two kingdoms that merged, Dira in the south of Northumbria and Bernicia in the north of Northumbria. I know that's a bit confusing, and I wouldn't even go into it, but we're going to see in the next lecture 
that the fact that Northumbria has really two kingdoms that come together in one, that makes a big difference. So those are the basic contours of English geography by around 600. But the dynastic picture is very, very complicated. This is a very competitive atmosphere. I just mentioned that these kingdoms have emerged out of competition for status among all of the various English war leaders. That process doesn't just end when one family finds itself on top. For one thing, each ruling family often gets embroiled in all sorts of internal disputes. It's very rare for son to follow father peacefully on the throne. And we can follow some of the ins and outs of this process in a document called the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. This is a year-by-year -year history of England that we'll be talking a lot about in the lectures to come. What we see in the Chronicle is a whole lot of succession disputes and quite a lot of violence. A lot of kings are killed by their rivals. Basically, English politics in the 7th century and even later, it's one big succession dispute. And this is probably one big reason why you don't get one kingdom absorbing all the others. There isn't any one kingdom that gets its act together long enough to do that. But one area in which the New English kingdoms do seem to have been completely successful is in wiping out virtually all trace of the people who lived in Britain before them. As I said earlier, the British fled or they assimilated with the newcomers. That doesn't mean that military conflict between the British and the Anglo-Saxons ends. Anglo-Saxon expansion is continuing throughout the 7th century. Slowly but surely, the Kingdom of Wessex extends its rule all the way to the southwest into the British-controlled territory of Devon and Somerset. Similarly, the Mercians make gains to the west at the expense of the Welsh. And the Northumbrians, they push north. They push so far north that they're up into territory that had been ruled by British dynasties up until then. And they go so far that they end up controlling essentially the area that is now lowland Scotland. And in fact, the dialect of English spoken in Scotland, it's known as Scots, that dialect of English is descended from that Northumbrian dialect. So the Anglo-Saxons are definitely still expanding. These new kingdoms are expanding. But still, they tend to come to a natural stopping point, more or less at the line that marks off the old division between the Roman civilian area and the Roman military area. They never get very far into Wales proper, for example. And the British who are pushed back into these remote areas, they sometimes give as good as they get. There are some very famous Welsh kings from this period, including a very renowned king known as Cadwallon. Cadwallon allies with a Mercian king, a king named Penda. They ally together, this Mercian king and this Welsh king, against King Edwin of Northumbria. And in 632, they go into battle against King Edwin and they slay him. So the British, who have been driven into the mountainous, less hospitable regions, regions of the island, they're still a force to be reckoned with. Now, one intriguing difference between the British and the Anglo-Saxons in 600, of course, is that the British are Christians, the Anglo-Saxons are pagans. The British are keeping the flame of Christianity alive on the fringes of the island. But they are not going to be the ones who convert the Anglo-Saxons to Christianity. We'll find out who did in our next lecture.